There are three levels of government in Australia, and they've each had their own role to play in responding to the COVID crisis. Hello, I'm Nick Bastow, and in this episode of Public Sector Perspectives, we look at what COVID has meant for the city of Casey, the largest council in Victoria after the city of Melbourne. Our guide is Glenn Patterson, CEO of the city of Casey. He describes how one decision taken three years ago made their transition to remote work easier, how you maintain staff morale during a period that has included the COVID-19 crisis and the sacking of the council, and why he thinks he might never see all his staff again. Melbourne's still a parochial place, and so to give us some context for this discussion, I began by asking Glenn Patterson to give us a snapshot of the city of Casey. So the city of Casey is uh, outside city of Melbourne, the largest council in Victoria. So we have, uh, have a population at the moment of 360,000, and that's growing at about three and a half or four percent a year. So the population is currently equivalent to that of, say, Canberra's. Uh, and by 2040, the forecasts are that will be about 550,000, which is essentially the population of Tasmania. So a big enterprise. We employ about 1,800 people, turn over about $550 million a year. Uh, and we cover a very diverse uh, community, range of communities too. So we, from a landscape point of view, go from the foothills of the Danong Ranges right through to the coastal villages of Western Port Bay. Uh, and in between, uh, we've got the more established suburbs, the likes of Mary Warren and Berwick, Helen Hampton Park. Uh, we're based at Mary Warren. Uh, and then to the south, you've got the growth areas around Cranbourne and Clyde. Uh, and we've also got large tracts of high quality agricultural land uh, in the southern part of the municipality as well. So very diverse in landscape, diverse in culture, faiths, religions, uh, and hence it creates a, a fascinating place to work. So that's us in a nutshell. Do you remember the pivot moment when I suppose the size of the organisational response that you were going to have to make to the COVID crisis became clear? Uh, I'm interested in knowing sort of where were you and what happened that made you think this is going to be really big What's the first organisational action that you took after that sort of moment of discovery? Yeah, I recall it was, I think, about the second week in March and we'd just been coming off the second stage of IVAC hearing. So that was really our focus as an organisation. From a communications engagement point of view, I'd been on the stand and we came back and we're doing some very intensive engagement with our people around that. And I recall sitting there with the comms team just sort of mapping out what the week looked like from a, a staff communications and engagement perspective. And... Uh, they gave me the feedback that uh, the issue on the floor and the concern was less so about that and much more so about this emerging uh, COVID-19 crisis. And I think around that time, we were seeing it unfold, obviously not in China, but just there, but also in Spain and Italy and seeing the rapid escalation of the issues there. And I think it was around that day, I also recall the Federal Health Minister getting advice uh, from the senior health officials in the federal government to say that they should close the borders in China. And uh, that was sort of the start. And I think it was around that day that it kind of emerged that, you know, this is a serious pandemic and uh, we need to rearrange ourselves. So to your second question, what do we do in response? Uh, the first thing we did was to uh, establish literally about that day, a pandemic operations team, which is titled at that, and just brought together uh, twice daily to start with before we got into a, a more sustainable rhythm uh, the right people to make decisions as to how to react and there was various streams of activity that we uh, got that team to work on and that just evolved over the, the coming weeks. The shutdowns meant that there's been a huge effort put into moving services online but of course 
Lots of services can't be sort of digitised. I wonder what are some of the non-digitised local government services that had to be kept going during the shutdown period that can't just be, you can't sort of say, oh, well, online, we'll fix it. Yes, yeah, exactly. Uh, look, a large number, really. So while we moved really quickly to move uh, almost all of our office space workers to more remote working locations and working from home, um, we identified what those critical services were that uh, were basically the frontline services that, that needed to be uh, continuing to provide um, service. So what were they? I mean, the main one probably was really sort of domestic care assistance. So I think our um, staff in the home care, Meals on Wheels, Agent Stability area was probably a key one for us. So again, you're dealing with you know, the most isolated, vulnerable, um, in many cases disadvantaged uh, members of our community who required consistent uh, support. And of course, that was very difficult when we didn't have sufficient uh, PPE, didn't have protocols really established around how uh, social distancing and checking uh, all of those compliance with those things was going to happen. So that would be one. I think um, the in-house uh, in um, home care was, was one. What else? There was maternal and child health was another one uh, where there's you know, regular contact through consultations with parents and, and obviously infants as well. So again, that was renegotiated and there was different arrangements put in place to do that remotely in many cases for uh, those regular consultations. Uh, we've got a large, obviously in a growing large council area, we've got you know a large number of um, kindergartens. So that was another one uh, where there was a, a short hiatus for kindergarten services. They came back even when schools continued to be closed. Uh, so again, there was a whole range of new protocols that in place there. So a few examples, and I suppose on our outdoor crews, there was just a whole range of maintenance activities that continued on, as you mentioned, waste management, which we haven't delivered under contract, continued. But outside that, it was everything from, you know, road and footpath maintenance to trail maintenance, uh, parks, reserves, bushlands, you know, playgrounds, all of those kind of things. Uh, maintenance of all of those activities, you know, continued. So we have this contradiction really where we had a large number of our frontline services continuing and just adapting some of them were able to partially do some of that work online but a lot of that you know customer facing service delivery had to continue pretty much as it was uh, at, the, at the same time that we had to support this transition to remote working for a lot of our office based staff but I uh, couldn't be proud of I mean, my observation would be those frontline people put themselves into you know quite precarious situations especially in the early days uh, as we're beginning to understand what the risks were associated with that, but their commitment to continuing providing those services was, uh, was unquestioned for the right term. As you mentioned, a lot of staff have to move to sort of remote working, and I, I suppose this has been a, a huge test for all all large organisations to rapidly move to that remote working environment. What sort of internal changes had to happen at KC in order to support that shift to remote work? We were fortunate. We uh, practiced activity-based working at the city of Casey. So that meant <clears throat> a number of years ago, probably about three years ago, we uh, set up all of our staff with the tools to support that way of working. Um, so that really assisted this transition to remote working well. So all of our people, literally all of our people, have you know laptops or other sort of two-in-one type devices that um, have full remote access. So that certainly helped, um, as well as a you know strong fleet of smartphones and the like. So I think that was that was a that was a huge uh, great assistance in that early period. Um, beyond that, it was identifying you know where our people were to be located. So we had to separate teams to make sure that if any of our teams uh, you know 
were unfortunate enough to be diagnosed with coronavirus that didn't infect a whole team. So we split our teams up across three principal work sites in those early days at Bundral Place, which is our headquarters in Narry Warren, Vibe, our sort of work centre in Narry Warren, and a third site down in Lindbrook. So we took those sorts of actions uh, and then progressively realised that as we were going to be at this for some time, putting in place a whole range of other sort of support tools, uh, both from a technology point of view, but also in terms of social and cultural support to make sure that people are thriving in that remote working environment. You've had three years, I suppose, as you said, to sort of practice this shift towards a remote workplace and you've had the systems in place. I'm wondering, looking back on it now, um, what do you think are the big impediments to making that sort of shift to a remote workplace? Is it the technology question? Is it the fact that existing systems and processes often are set up to be face-to-face? Or is it the sort of attitude and the risk aversion question where people think, well, if I can't see my work team, you know, how do I know what they're doing? Yes. Look, it's all of those things, I think. So on the technology aspect of it, we've been, um, you know, investing heavily in remote working technology for some time. So that provided a stable platform of access. Obviously, as people started transitioning to working from home, there was some connection issues and things like that that were more at a local level that we needed to address. Uh, and people wanted to take some of their equipment with them as well. So there was people taking monitors and uh, things like that to support the the devices they already have um, in that remote working environment. In a very short space of time, our tech team did an amazing job of through the service desk sort of rearranging how they provided support and brought forward a whole lot of upgrades to various applications to make sure that there was the speed and reliability of connections that people needed. So uh, there's been great recognition of their efforts over time especially in that first couple of months to, to achieve so much progress in such a sort of short space of time. So I think that that, uh, that was great just in terms of accelerating some of that development. Uh, to your second part there about, you know, the processes, yes, um, you know, that's really accelerated a lot of our digitalization of processes. So a lot of approvals, a lot of forms that we use for various uh, processes internally, we've got a team now focused just on digitizing all of those. So again, there's been great progress made on that. And we've ramped up our delegations too. That's the other thing, you know, everything from planning delegations to financial delegations from the council to me and to the staff. So again, there's greater autonomy and empowerment of our people around that. Uh, So there's less escalation of issues and less approvals, layers of approvals required. So that's been really helpful too. And culturally, yes, I think it's just our experience has been, and it's very much when we practice and, um, shared leadership and we don't just not just rhetoric we actually do that and this has been a great opportunity for doing that and living one of our values which is around empowering each other but this has enabled that to happen so it's really been a case of you know trusting our people in that remote distributed environment to do what they need to do to manage the outcomes and not micromanage those people and I cringe when I read stories about some of the large corporations you know, measuring keystrokes of people working from home and to ensure they're, they're productive and those sorts of things. So that has meant a shift for us. As you say, it's not a case of managing by presence or by visibility, but it's, you know, working to outcomes and creating the space and the flexibility for people to do things in their own time when they're balancing, in many cases, homeschooling and, and family life with, with a full-time job as well. So overall, uh, people's adaptability around that has been terrific. How many of those sort of changes, internal changes to processes and attitudes, would you want to keep in place in a sort of post-COVID world or a COVID normal world? 
Yeah, great question. I think that's the, the trick in all this, isn't it? It's to capture the benefits of this experience and you know, to rush back to the things that we think are of value. But equally, for us, it's a much larger list of things that we're not going to rush back to um, and will be changed you know, forever. So we're capturing all of that work um, in two ways. One is we've got this transition planning process that's um, got four phases to it. So we're just working our way through that. Uh, so that's giving us insight into how our work is going to adapt over time. And we're also doing a workplace strategy as well to make sure that we systemically embed those changes that we think uh, have provided benefits, both in terms of you know, productivity for our employees and, and workforce, but also the kind of <clears throat> conditions and, and balance that we think is really uh, helpful for our people as well. So yeah, in broad terms, there's a lot of you know, detail in all of that planning, but in, in broad terms, I see some significant shifts and us you know, not going back to our traditional ways of working in traditional workplaces uh, as we have historically. Going to ask you to stick your finger in the air and sort of guess which way the wind's blowing, but do you think you'll ever see all your office-based staff back in their workplace in the future? No, look, I'm convinced we won't, and I don't think that's just uh, by necessity. Obviously, that will be the short-term imperative because we won't be able to get all our people back in with the, uh, the requirements around managing the pandemic, but it's just given us insights and learnings uh, to, to demonstrate benefits of different ways of working. So we're going to be capturing a lot of that. And so the traditional thought of us all having to commute to a centralised workplace every day and, um, you know, we see the benefits of, you know, in collaboration and, and joined up pieces of work. And obviously there's certain things that we do and there's terms as an organisation where we benefit from being together. But there's a large number of activities uh, and tasks within our various job types that uh, can be done as effectively and in some cases we've proven you know, more effectively uh, when working remotely. So no, I don't see us ever returning to where we were back in February, March this year and uh, it's a great opportunity to really move into a completely different paradigm and different way of working. Crises uncover unexpected things. I'm wondering what's the most unexpected meeting or decision that you were involved with during the COVID crisis? Oh, gee, there's so many of them. I think um, what I'd observe is probably just the, you know, we're, we're trying to, I think, demonstrate to the organisation that we're doing our planning, we're doing the thinking, you know, we've got good communication and engagement and that we've sort of got a handle on this to the extent we can. But equally, I think you've got to be, you know, realistic with the organisation that there's a whole, so many unknowns and it's so fluid and it's so unpredictable with what's been happening uh, that you just kind of share that thinking as well. Um, so to your question, I think there's been all sorts of issues and challenges presented to us that we wouldn't have anticipated, you know, a few months ago. What I would say is that, uh, you know, generally and overwhelmingly, um, we've, you know, because we've got that delegated, you know, empowered kind of model in place, um, people have really stepped up and seen that as an opportunity to just tackle those things and get the job done. So there's a real sense of, people's willingness to go the extra mile to not be put off by you know the business as usual sort of workload and challenges and also you know on top of that these other challenges about how we just adjust and adapt um, to the conditions that we find ourselves you know changing around us you know so dramatically so all sorts of things and i suppose, I suppose that's also complicated for us in that um you know we've got administrators now you know having our elected councillors leave as well so again there's all sorts of decisions and accountabilities that come on us uh, that, that wouldn't, you know, with an elected council in place. 
let's just go to that question of the administrators um, because, um, you know, COVID didn't come out of a, it doesn't happen in a vacuum. Councils are already facing a whole line, organizations are facing a whole range of other issues pre-COVID. Um, so it's, it's, been a, um, it's been a very stressful time. I just wonder how, um, how you lead, at, lead during, I suppose, a crisis like COVID on top of a moment when there was already sort of a lot of organizational change, the sacking of the council in uh, February, March, uh, you know, and all those sort of things. How do you sort of, you know, I suppose, encourage staff to, to feel like, um, you know, they can still commit to the organization and that they believe in, in, what, in what's going on? Yeah, I think it's just having really deep engagement with your people. I think it's a starting point with that. So we do that in a number of ways. Uh, so we've got regular sort of check-ins. We've had a pulse survey conducted in the last month and there's a whole, and they're quite a light touch, so they're not a great burden, but it's just an opportunity for the broader leadership team to get insight into where people are at, what their concerns are, and how we need to adjust as we go along. I think that's probably the, the first thing to say. Uh, and demonstrate, you know, that we're listening, that we've got empathy, we've got a whole range of things in place to promote people's resilience, um, you know, tools, techniques, tips around how to do that, to keep people well, uh, and to make sure that, you know, everyone's as healthy and, and thriving in this environment. So I think it's having that sort of support and insight in place is really key. And that's everything from, you know, mental health to physical wellbeing to, you know, having a manageable workload, having time with your family, all of those things. So there's been a consistent sort of program around that. Um, and I think at the same time, as I said earlier, demonstrating that you're on top of your game in relation to the immediate urgent challenges that COVID and these conditions are dishing up to us. But at the same time, to the extent that the organisation's got the capacity to, also progressing our longer-term um, projects and, and strategic change as well. So, again, you know, we keep finessing that because there is a sense with some of our people that they've, they've got a you know, full dance card with what's going on with COVID and everything associated with that, especially for our frontline people. Um, so it's making sure that we don't overload them with, you know, sort of our transformation and strategy kind of work as well. So I think it's doing both, having an eye to the immediate and the short term and making sure we're on top of that, supporting people, have business continuity in place. And, and at the same time, we're still doing that longer term, you know, cultural leadership development. We still continue with all of our learning and development activities uh, and our broader leadership teams still progressing pretty much on track with our program of, of change and information work at the same time. Local government plays a, a key role in sort of local planning processes, local regulations and bylaws, all of which play a really important role in local economic activity and, to be honest, you know, pandemic recovery activity. Um, during, during the crisis, there must have been a lot of pressure to reduce regulatory controls to keep you know, economic and social activities happening. How do you balance the need to be flexible in those sort of situations without just sort of, you know, making it a free for all. Yeah, look, great question. I'm, you know, I'm not sure we've got the balance right, but we've strived to get that balance uh, as you described it just then. So, you know, in the first few months of COVID, what we did was uh, had a package of initiatives to support both the community, but also business um, to provide relief. So that was relief from a financial point of view. So we either waived or suspended a whole range of you know, fines, uh, license fees and other charges that we would ordinarily impose on on businesses uh, around the municipality. And as I say, we've either, you know, had three or six months suspension of those or just cancellation of them at all or significant reductions. So did that sort of work? 
We uh, did a lot of work with our developers. That's probably another key stakeholder group for us in a, a growth council to make sure that uh, we were taking the lightest touch possible to the various approval processes and touch points we have with them. So we came up with a, after engaging with them through a forum and then some subsequent um, conversations with key sort of opinion leaders within the development industry, about 20 actions that would in the short and medium and longer term, firstly, improve their cash flows. Uh, so we played a role in everything from managing bonds to how we pay them for delivering works in kind and, and just expediting and simplifying a lot of our approval processes without, as you say in the question, uh, you know, creating too much risk and, and still obviously having rigour and probity in those in those decision-making processes. So did that sort of work. Um, and yeah, did we get it right? I'm not sure, but um, we certainly are very conscious of it and continue to check in to make sure that we've got that balance right between, you know, keeping the integrity in our decision-making, but at the same time, making sure we're simplifying our processes and stripping out the bureaucracy and again, you know, much of that won't be just for this COVID period. That will actually be sort of reimagining and re-engineering our processes in perpetuity. You're someone with a very long uh, career in leadership and lo local government. Um, I'm wondering what's the best advice you've heard along the way about leading in a crisis that sort of resonated with you when something like COVID happened, something totally unexpected happened. Yeah, look, I think, you know, from different sources, but um, I think uh, the, the messaging that's probably mostly in my head, and I think like I'd like to think is how I reflected in sort of our practice as leaders at Casey is, is getting that balance between being, you know, authentic and courageous and brave, you know, making the tough calls, taking strong positions around things that you think are in the, the best long-term interests of the municipality. And, and much of that has to be done when you're in a, a rapidly changing environment like this. And at the same time, you know, on the other hand, having sort of the care and compassion and the empathy for our staff and for, you know, businesses and members of the community that are vulnerable, particularly, you know, many of whom might be losing their businesses or be unemployed. So I think getting the balance between those two is probably the, the essence of it. And, you know, I'm probably channeling, if I'm to mention anyone, probably channeling Brene Brown and people of that uh, nature as much as anybody about just making sure that you've got that, you know, authenticity, you're showing up as a real person, as a leader. Um, you're being as open and, and engaging with your people as you can be. Uh, but, uh, yeah, being strong and, and courageous at the same time when you need to be. Uh, but, you know, also being vulnerable, I think, too, as I mentioned earlier, I think that's that's a key thing to, to make sure that, you know, I haven't got all the answers and, you know, I've got my challenges personally, professionally through this time as well and sharing those kind of stories, which we've been doing through various media around the organisation as well. Maybe finally, you could just describe one of the moments that happened in the last two months that you think sort of captures what you hope was the essence of City of Casey's response to the COVID crisis. Yeah, it's really tough to nominate one. There's been so many of those opportunities. But I, I think um, I'd probably say when we've reached out to the organisation and said to them, we have a need in a part of the business here uh, to help people in our community, you know, can you sort of leave behind your ordinary work and help us with this? Um, so an example of that, and there's many, but one example would be with... Um, our isolated, vulnerable elderly people. We had a, a program of regular calls in and check-ins to them, and we needed just a lot of people in a sort of mini contact centre, really, to contact those thousands of people in our case. 
and it was tens of thousands of people. So, you know, we put a shout out to say who would like to volunteer for this work. And, you know, it was just amazing. So people were continuing with their normal jobs and doing this as well, in many cases after hours. And we were, you know, it was really well subscribed. So I think it just shows the, the humanity of people uh, and the fact that we employ a lot of, you know, really decent human beings who are prepared to do more in a time like this to, to help others in need. So that would be one example, but there, there was many like that. Glenn Patterson, thanks so much for being part of Public Sector Perspectives. Thanks, Nick. Appreciate the chat. That brings us to the end of Public Sector Perspectives for this week. If you want to learn more about the work of Brené Brown, who Glenn referred to as influencing his ideas on leadership, we have links in the show notes to some of her books and a recent TED talk she gave. There, we also have links to the leadership courses that IPA Victoria offers and that are designed specifically to deal with the unique challenges of being a leader in the public sector. You can get in touch with Public Sector Perspectives via info at vic.ipaa.org.au or via IPA Victoria on all the usual social media channels. And thanks for listening.